During this COVID-19 shutdown, we've seen news programs originate from home. We've seen a full orchestra pull off a wonderful recording from their respective homes. But there's no way you could conduct a thoroughbred auction online, right? I mean, Keeneland canceled its April sale. But wait, an online sale really did happen. We'll explain how it was pulled off. Plus, Santa Anita officials are trying to get back to racing, as some other tracks are doing. We'll go over the different options they're considering on this edition of In the Gate. They're in the gate. They're about to move in. They roll side. And they're off. As they move to the top of the straight, it's a hip-hopping finish! This is In The Gate, ESPN's Thoroughbred Racing Podcast. My name is Barry Abrams. You can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. You can also get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can find us on Stitcher, SoundCloud, TuneIn, the Pink Apple Podcatcher app, and of course in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. And please take a minute to rate and review the show. Those reviews really help others find us. And maybe, just maybe, it'll help those Mensa members at America's Best Racing include us in the Fan Choice Awards this November. They do have plenty of time to find us, you know. Well, if you give us good reviews, then it's not our fault if we're not included. In August of 2018, a percentage of ownership of a filly named Atlanta, the winner of the Hambletonian, the Kentucky Derby of Harness Racing, was sold online. It got us to wondering on this show about a year ago whether a thoroughbred auction would ever be held online. But our guests on that show, trainer Graham Motion and bloodstock agent Brad Weisbord, were skeptical of whether it would work. Well, this COVID-19 shutdown has resulted in some things you probably never thought you'd see. Huge convention centers turned into makeshift hospitals. The NCAA basketball tournament abandoned, the Masters Golf Tournament rescheduled for November, and the Kentucky Derby moved to September, maybe. And then there's this. A thoroughbred auction in Australia happened online. The William Inglis and Son Easter Yearling Sale, which usually takes place near Sydney, happened on the Internet this time. Buyers from different countries put in bids, and while the average price of a yearling was off by 11% and the median price was down by around 4%, the fact the sale came off at all is certainly noteworthy. Here to tell us more about how it all worked is English Managing Director Mark Webster, whom we welcome for the first time here to Win the Gate. Let's start at the beginning. How early on did you get the idea that an in-person auction might not be possible? Well, about three weeks ago, the restrictions here that have been dictated by government certainly increased. We Initially, we thought we'd be able to run a, a physical auction three weeks ago, but with less people on the grounds and the need to maintain social distancing. So we engaged biosecurity experts to help us try and understand how we could still run an auction with horses on the grounds and yeah, with restrictive movements of people around the facilities. And literally a week before we were due to run the auction, the government banned all live auctions. So that that made us reassess very, very quickly uh, what our options were, of course. We had some industry participants suggesting we should postpone the sale and run it in July, you know, with a view that perhaps by July the restrictions would be lifted. But, of course, if we were to delay the sale, we're talking about selling yearlings 
that really need to get into the, the training system so they can be competing. Come uh, September, October, we have our two-year-old racing season that commences. So if we're selling them in July, uh, not a lot of time to get them ready for racing in September, October. We decided we had to really take the online option seriously. Thankfully, here at Inglis, over the last 10 years, we've been investing in digital technology, and we have two solutions which we already use more to supplement our auction business. So one of them is an online bidding platform that we've been running now for nearly 10 years. So whenever we run a physical auction with uh, you know, live selling of horses, we for 10 years we've been giving our customers the option of bidding online and we would generally sell 10 to 15% online anyhow with people that aren't at the sale. And uh, we also have, I guess, an eBay-style uh, bidding platform as well where we can run an entire auction using that, that platform with no physical horses on the ground. So we already have two other solutions and we decided to use the online bidding platform and create what we call a virtual auction and we had a week to pull it off. When you say bidding online, were any of those people sitting in the facility using their phones to bid on an app, or are these all people who were not on the grounds? Oh, these are people not on the ground. So we did have some clients bidding from places like Kentucky. So Marie Yoshida from Asian Bloodstock Services was bidding from her home in Kentucky. Now, Marie had been out to Australia, and she had inspected horses on farms a few weeks before. She elected to come out to Australia and put herself into quarantine here for two weeks, then look at the horses on the farms over five days, and then she flew back to Kentucky and did all her bidding online from Kentucky in the middle of the night, which was our daytime. So there are people like that, people in Europe that did the same, in Japan, were bidding from around the world. In terms of on the grounds here, we weren't allowed to have you know, a lot of clients here. We're also a hotel here, right? We've got a five-star hotel as part of our auction selling facility. So there were three in-house guests in the hotel that were allowed to sit in these private rooms overlooking the sales arena that did bid visually to the auctioneer. But other than those three, everyone else was off-site. What was the conversation like with your potential buyers and sellers when you posed the idea of an online auction? Well, they're all desperate to sell their stock. You know, a, a yearling is a perishable item. They're only a yearling for so long and they, they get older every day. So, you know, there were some of our clients that uh, weren't happy about the idea and, and decided that they would withdraw. In fact, our leading uh, vendor decided to withdraw 60 horses from the sale with a view they thought they would be better placed to sell them directly off the farm and have people come to the farm and buy them. And a few other farms withdrew their drafts purely because they were in quite remote locations around Australia. It was very difficult for buyers to go to their farms and inspect them. But the farms that were more accessible, we, we have a breeding region here in, in New South Wales called the Hunter Valley, which is a bit like Kentucky over there um, you know, around Lexington, Kentucky, where there's a large number of studs in one place. And really those studs all stood together and invited buyers to go and inspect the horses on, on their properties. And that way, the buyers at least had some idea of what they were bidding on. But, uh, but I tell you, video technology and an online repository of information, vet reports and x-rays and scoping reports, all of that helped facilitate those buyers who, and there were, there were particular customers that did not get to see a horse physically at all. They had to buy purely off 
video information, confirmation videos and, and veterinary reports and did all their bidding and inspections remotely. Ballpark figure, what percentage of those buyers got to see horses in person on those stud farms and what percentage did not? Uh, look, it's difficult to put an exact figure on that. You know, I would say perhaps 20% of the buyers may not have seen the horses at all. Some of them may have had somebody have a look at them for them and others uh, not at all. It's, it's still too early to really assess. I, I do know there are some buyers that just did not travel here at all from the UK and from Japan and had to make a judgment based off the services we provided. You know, and noting that if you look at 2019 when we ran a normal sale, we averaged 350,000 per yearling. Now, this year we averaged 310,000 per yearling. So it didn't drop that as much as a lot of people had expected. The clearance rate was not as strong. You know, normally we would clear over 80% at an auction. We're sitting at 66% at the moment. So the clearance did suffer. But that was mainly due to the fact that there are some farms that still participated in the sale even though they didn't have a lot of on-farm inspections. So what we're doing, we've, we've structured this sale. So there's a round one, which we've just held, and we've split it. So there's also a round two on the 5th of July. And on the 5th of July, all those horses that uh, withdrew from round one or they didn't sell in round one, they can be re-offered again on July 5, giving the buyers more time to go and have a look at them on the farm. So we've really had to change the way we work. It's about using technology, but it's also around splitting the sale now into effectively two rounds to give vendors more time and a second opportunity to sell. Mark Webster, the Managing Director for Australia's Inglis and Sun Bloodstock Auctioneers, joins us here on In The Gate. Now, I want to get back to the money in a minute, but once the shutdown occurred, were there any veterinarians who would represent buyers? Were they allowed to inspect the horses? Yes, the, the veterinarians were still able to get around onto farms and inspect. So they would do their physicals on farms. You know, before the shutdown occurred, um, a lot of the radiographic work, which is basically the x-ray images that are taken of the horse's legs and feet, etc., they'd been taken a couple of weeks ago, and so they were uploaded in, into the repository. Uh, here in Australia, we do a lot of pre-sale scoping, which is basically a review of a horse's throat to, to check its breathing, whether there's going to be any uh, limitations to its breathing capacity when racing. So those scoping reports, again, were done on farm, and they were actually done during the restricting uh, period of restrictions. But here in Australia at the moment, if you can still move about if it's for work-related purposes and vets going out and assessing horses, it's still something that's possible now even with the restrictions because it's a work-related matter. So the vets did a really good job in, in uploading all of this information into a digital repository and that allowed vet, other vets that are acting on behalf of buyers all around the world to log in and see all of those reports online and, uh, and advise their clients on which horses they, you know, they recommended purchasing and, and others that they should overlook. Now, you mentioned the international nature of this sale. Do you think you had buyers participate who might not have otherwise because of the time and expense of traveling to Australia with now everybody kind of on a level playing field being online? Look, I don't think we got a lot of new buyers. We certainly, there were some, there were some clients that haven't been active for a few years. Barry, the Australian uh, bloodstock market has really been quite hot the last few years, a little like uh, in North America. 
and difficult to get in. And certainly the values have increased quite a lot. And so there are there's some, I guess what we call some older clients that had had stepped out for a few years. Some of them came back in because they thought there'd be great buying opportunities. So we, we certainly did get a wider range of buyers uh, registering for the sale. I'll give you an example on the stats. Last year at the Easter sale, we had uh, 170 individual buyers that are recorded on the sheet, the buying sheet. This year we had a similar number, but what was more interesting is we had 400 buyers register to bid with credit approved. So the thing about our systems is there's lots of systems out there where people can can bid, but the system we've developed here basically allocates a credit limit per buyer so that somebody that might be approved for a million dollars cannot bid above that total million dollars over the course of the sale. The system will lock them out. And that is really important for us. So leading into the sale, we could see we had 400 buyers approved and we could see the amount of credit that we had approved to buyers to actually use throughout the sale. And what I can say is that there was a, still a large amount of credit approved that didn't get spent at the sale. And that is because we sort of ran out of horses or the horses that didn't sell are ones that uh, people just didn't have time to thoroughly inspect. So there really was good demand from, from right around the world. Overall, 214 horses sold for a total of almost $43 million in U.S. dollars. And as we mentioned, the average price was down 11% to just under 200000 in U.S. dollars, and the median price was down by 4%. Now, you started to talk about those results. What do you make of these numbers? Oh, well, they're good numbers. They stack up compared to last year, and, and since the original results were published, we've been able to sell another 15 or so horses and generate a few more million in turnover. So we're still selling horses every day here, even over the Easter holidays. Uh, We've had clients coming in and we have a function online where people can just click and make an offer and buy a horse after the sale as well. So that is all happening. I think the results stand up very well. We were expecting that the value of bloodstock might drop by 50% heading into the sale and that didn't happen. You know, you when you have a look at it, it's down about 15%, not 50%, which is uh, quite remarkable. I think the key is you know, making it easy for people, making it accessible. I think there's a lot of bloodstock investors out there around the world that saw this as a buying opportunity, that the market would be depressed and registered for credit. Um, and that's why the level of registrations were so high. Some of them, I think, would feel that they've bought a bargain and others feel that they they got a very small discount, but they're happy with what they've purchased. And there might be some out there that figure, well, the market just wasn't soft enough for them. They were bargain hunting and the bargains weren't there to be had. Now, once this COVID-19 shutdown is over, I don't think horsemen and horsewomen will want to replace in-person auctions with online auctions, at least not all the time. But is there a sector of the bloodstock market that could be potentially handled online in the future? Oh, of course. Look, there's a whole range of different bloodstock sales. We we run regular auctions. We run two uh, auctions a month where horses are literally just uploaded online in an eBay-style auction where there is no auctioneer involved. The horses are just listed and people can bid over a period of five days on those horses. So we're doing that here in Australia now. And we're... At this point, the only ones in the world, only thoroughbred auctioneers in the world that are offering that style of auction. I certainly think there's 
scope for that in North America. I also think the scope in North America for what we call a virtual auction, which is where you still see an auctioneer in the video, but you've got a digital platform that's counting up the bids and managing credit approval and um, making sure that there's um, good security around the, the bidding process. And so we've got both of those systems and we're quite keen to help other auctioneering firms around the world to use our technology. So those that might be listening to this interview right now, feel free to contact Inglis. We we have Inglis Bloodstock, which is our auctioneering firm, but we also have another company called Ardex Technology, which, which I also chair that particular company. And all they do is provide technology services. So they're in a position to help other auctioneering firms around the world to do this. And I really think everyone really needs to put in place measures so that one, even during a physical auction, they can supplement it with digital technology and allow customers to bid from around the world, regular customers that have confidence in those auction houses. They don't always need to travel to be there. So they can use it at every auction. And we've been doing that now for 10 years. I do find it surprising that there's other auctioneering firms around the world that still don't even have that capability when I believe it's pretty straightforward. We have seen the future. Mark Webster of Inglis and Son Bloodstock, thank you so much for sharing this with us. Very interesting development here. Great. Thanks for your interest, Barry. We've seen a few tracks be able to conduct racing without spectators, of course, during this coronavirus shutdown. Will Santa Anita soon be one of them? After the break, we'll tell you how officials there are trying to make it happen. Welcome back to In the Gate. As of this recording, only a handful of tracks in the United States have been able to conduct horse racing of any kind. Oak Lawn, Gulfstream, despite the opposition of the vice mayor of Hallandale Beach, where the track is located, Tampa, Fonner Park in Nebraska, Remington Park in Oklahoma, and Los Alamitos near Anaheim, California. Los Al has been running races with no spectators. Both thoroughbreds and quarter horses have appeared in these races. Santa Anita had continued to run races for two weeks after most of the world shut down on March 11th and 12th. Then, on Friday, March 27th, as preparations were being made to start the day's card, the Los Angeles County Health Department abruptly stopped Santa Anita's racing operations. The department allowed morning training to continue, but no racing in the afternoon. Then came a report last week by the website Horse Racing Nation that Santa Anita officials might try to transfer some of its race dates to Los Alamitos. The article quoted a statement from the Thoroughbred Owners of California, which said that Orange County, where Los Alamitos is located, continues to treat both racing and training as an essential activity. Now it appears that the Los Al scenario will not be happening. So what options are there for Santa Anita to try to get back up and running? For that, we welcome back to In the Gate Art Wilson, who writes about the sport for the Southern California News Group, which includes the newspaper the San Gabriel Valley Tribune. So what happened with the proposed transfer of dates from Santa Anita to Los Alamitos? Well, you know, Barry, I'm not quite sure who initiated those talks, but uh, in talking to Jack Lebow, the vice president of Los Alamitos, uh, he indicated to me that there were never any substantive talks, that it never really got to the serious stage. 
and that um, there had been no substantive talks and there were none to be scheduled in the future. And uh, he told me that on the record and then also told me uh, any switch from the dates from Santa Anita to Los Al was not going to happen. And that's a direct quote. And then, uh, of course, I talked to a few other people who gave me a little bit more that were familiar with what was going on, but they wanted to speak off the record because they weren't authorized to speak about it. First of all, I hope you're social distancing from those I can hear in the background. What kind of racing is happening now at Los Al? Right now you have the regular uh, quarter horse racing, which, uh, you know, they have that Friday through Sunday nights, three nights a week. And then uh, once in a while, they'll have like four and a half furlong races, which have the, like the very cheap claiming horses, $2,500 claimers. Now, Saturday night, they added five 870-yard races for thoroughbreds. They're open to both thoroughbreds and quarter horses, but in these five races on Saturday night, there were only thoroughbreds who entered. And 870 yards is just a tad shorter than four and a half furlongs. You can have quarter horses and thoroughbreds racing against each other in a sanctioned race? As long as it's 870 yards, yes. Why wouldn't Dr. Edward Allred, the owner of Los Al, want these dates from Santa Anita if he could get them with a chance for some found money? Well, what one source told me, and this was off the record, but uh, he said I could use it if I didn't name who it was. There's basically two people who went off the record for two different reasons why this isn't going to happen. Number one is in the past, Santa Anita has tried to deny Los Alamitos racing dates. They have three meets a year, Los Alamitos, and they're usually anywhere from two weeks to three weeks in length. And Santa Anita wants those dates. They don't think Los Alamitos should have them. They don't have a turf course, blah, blah, blah. And uh, so that's one reason. The, number, the second reason is that, uh, and going back to the first reason, Barry, is what the person told me is why would Los Alamitos want to do a favor to owners who were trying to take away dates from them? That's number one. Number two is Los Alamitos is in the process of trying to just have self-preservation. They don't want the spotlight coming down on them with the Orange County Health Board with the racing. And so they're just trying to stay in the background, you know, not too much spotlight or attention on them so they can continue uh, their quarter horse slash uh, thoroughbred meet at night. A recent report on the Blood Horse website states that Santa Anita officials are, as of this recording, trying to arrange a meeting with L.A. County health officials to convince them to allow racing to resume without spectators. As of this recording, where does that effort stand? As far as I know, the meeting is supposed to take place on Saturday, this coming Saturday. And Aiden Butler, who is the uh, acting head of Astronic Group's California Racing Division, has now gone on record as saying, I'm not going to take no for an answer. So Santa Anita is continuing to press the uh, L.A. County Health Board to let them reopen, pressing the Alameda uh, Health Board to let Golden Gate reopen. But then I also read and I've also heard that the L.A. County Health Board is holding firm that nothing is going to be held until May 15th at the earliest. So uh, I think that the Saturday meeting is going to be key 
And personally, I'm not real optimistic that uh, the health board's going to give in, but we'll see. Anything can happen, I guess. Art Wilson of the Southern California Newspaper Group joins us here on In the Gate. Santa Anita officials are arguing that it takes fewer people to pull off a race in the afternoon than it does to train horses in the morning, which is still permitted. If this meeting we're talking about actually takes place, what chance do you think there is that the L.A. County Health Department puts a ban on training rather than allowing racing? Barry, that's the puzzling part about this all, because I've heard that in the mornings, there's at least a thousand people right around that uh, number uh, with the horses. And when they have the afternoon racing, there's about one-tenth that many people. So it doesn't make any sense to allow the training and then not allow the racing. And Santa Anita management has bent over backwards. Uh, Everyone's wearing masks. There's social distancing. They have hand sanitizers everywhere. So they're trying to show the L.A. County Health Board, hey, it doesn't make any sense to ban afternoon racing and allow the training to go on in the morning, especially when the backstretch workers' health plan and health care all depends on the live betting. The money that is uh, gained by the uh, afternoon racing, that's all been shut off. And so the backstretch workers are they're in grave danger right now. Well, let's step back for a minute here. When you talk about those backstretch workers, how is the COVID-19 situation at Santa Anita as of this recording? No one has tested positive at Santa Anita for the COVID-19 virus. And that's another puzzling issue. But, you know, I know that a worker, I believe, a backstretch worker at Belmont Park tested positive a couple of weeks ago and died. Santa Anita, no one has tested positive for the virus. And I also believe that no one up at Golden Gate Fields has tested positive for the virus. So that's another puzzling aspect. I haven't talked to one person in the industry who doesn't believe strongly that some certain animal rights groups have played a big part in Santa Anita getting shut down. I can't even start to get into that. I have nothing substantive on which to go. But I will ask this. Del Mar's beloved summer meet is scheduled to start on July 18th. Now, we're still over three months away from that, of course. But the question is, at what point before the start of the meet do you think decisions need to be made, most importantly about whether trainers should crank up their horses to be ready to run there? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I I was going to get in contact for a future column uh, either this week or next week with Joe Harper out of Del Mar and talk to him about that. I would think just uh, off the cuff, at least a month, six weeks, where a decision would would have to be made on that. You know, right now things are are looking a little bit better as far as the whole country goes with this. Uh, New York, which was the epicenter, the numbers are starting to show a positive side. So I'm not sure really I I would have to ask Joe Harper that. But certainly what you say, Barry, the the horsemen need an advance to know hey, are we going to ship there or, or not? You know, And uh, they have that ship and win program from horses out of state who a lot of times come in and, and you know get a bonus for if they haven't had their most recent race in California. So uh, that's kind of a, uh, another whole can of worms dealing with the Del Mar situation. Well, we are glad that you are safe and healthy, Art Wilson, and thank you so much for bringing us up to date here. The beat goes on as this shutdown continues. Right. Anytime, Barry. You stay safe. Our thanks once again to Art Wilson and to Mark Webster. At the time that we're recording this, no decision has been made about when to run the Preakness or Belmont. We know the Kentucky Derby's set for Labor Day weekend, but could the other two races keep the same spacing or not? 
It's really up to NBC, the Triple Crown broadcast partner, and the issue really is Notre Dame football. On the would-be Preakness Day, September 19th, they have an afternoon game against Central Michigan. Could it shift later, past nightfall? If so, then three weeks after that, October 10th is clear for the Belmont Stakes because Notre Dame that day already has a night game scheduled against the Stanford Cardinal, and the Breeders' Cup would still be four weeks away. So weird as it is to run the Triple Crown with changing leaves, the schedule works with just one little tweak. It's worth it to continue the nearly sesquicentennial tradition of determining the best three-year-olds we seek. You can get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can find us on Stitcher, SoundCloud, TuneIn, the Pink Apple Podcatcher app, and of course in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. And please take a minute to rate and review the show. Those reviews really help others find us, including the geniuses at America's Best Racing, who may or may not include us in the Fan Choice Awards this November. Maybe with your help, we'll get that done. And you can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. That's In The Gate for this week. I'm Barry Abrams. We hope you're safe and healthy, and we'll see you next time.